Welcome to another episode of Following the Way. I'm your host, Jason Dickey. On this episode of Following the Way, we discuss an issue that is besetting our young people and hopefully talk about it in such a way that it can be encouraging to all of us. Stay tuned. Once again, and thank you for joining me in another episode of Following the Way. As I always say, feel free to write in, email into the podcast at followingthewaypodcast at gmail.com or following at following way on Twitter. Um, I uh, hope to hear back from you and hopefully with the things that we discuss uh, here um, in this episode, we'll have plenty of things to discuss, plenty of things to talk about, plenty of opportunity for you all to give me your thoughts and your feedback as we consider Specifically, the topic of raising our children, um, how to raise them in a godly manner, how to teach them the things that we need to, and specifically facing some of the specific trials that our youth faces today. Um, And so we're going to try and talk about some of those things a little bit specifically here together. And so I hope hope to hear your feedback. Uh, If you disagree with me, if you agree with me, if you have comments, if you have questions, um, write in, followingthewaypodcast at gmail.com or uh, on Twitter at Following Way, um, be happy to happy to hear from you and interact with you all, and hopefully we can have some good dialogue and discussion about the things that we are going to discuss. Without further ado, um, I want to begin by jumping into Deuteronomy six. Um, Deuteronomy six is known uh, for the Shema, um, this uh, great uh, passage um, that uh, the Hebrews all. Uh, the Jews all had memorized, uh, still have memorized, still have to memorize because of its power in defining uh, their monotheism of God, um, defining what it is that they believe. But here in Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, there's a section here that I have been thinking about a lot lately that kind of begins uh, our discussion here, where it says, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I, I think about this a lot. Um, obviously it is a well-known passage and obviously there's a lot of things to kind of unpack there, but it's that section there where it talks about teaching them diligently to your sons, talking of them when you're walking and when you're sitting to have them on your house and to have them all around you. Have you considered that? I I don't know how many of you that are listening have children. Um, maybe your children are grown and have left, um, and that gives you um, valuable perspective on this conversation. Maybe you have young children, as I do, um, who are not quite at the point where some of the things, things are quite as relevant uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, or maybe you don't have kids yet or never will. Um, in either case, I, I, I still think that this is a relevant discussion, um, specifically in, in terms of raising children, but also in terms of ourselves and what we do for those around about us, whether they're our children or not. And that is, how do we teach diligently? How do we show people what we believe? How do we teach them 
How do we help them to understand uh, the God that we know? How do we pass that along? I don't know how much you've considered that in the past. I don't know how much you've honed in on that or spent serious time considering this idea. But it's something that I've thought about a lot. Um, is having two young kids, how do I teach them diligently? How do I raise them up to know God? And how do I do so, uh, considering all the many dangers that they face? I'm still pretty young, uh, by most accounts. And yet, the world that my children are growing up in is vastly different than the world I grew up in. Um, We didn't have the social media, for lack of a better term, that children today have. We didn't have the instant communication of cell phones, of internet communication um, that the children of today do, the teenagers of today do. And that makes a huge difference in the struggles that they face. Now, I I know, ultimately, the principles that they face are the same. The the principles of life still apply no matter what the specific issue is. I, I understand that. And I understand that ultimately we try to do the same things that parents have always done to show them what it means to be a Christian and the way that we live and the way that we act, to show them how to read the Bible, to teach them the things that we know. I understand that all those things are the same, but I also think that we all understand that there are unique specifics about the generation that is coming up now and the things that they have to deal with. Specifically, one of the things that I've thought about is Gnosticism. Now, before you uh, get too excited about me talking about philosophy or, or uh, thinking that um, you don't know anything about philosophy or um, that isn't relevant to teenagers or, or kids in middle school or preteens or whatever because they don't know anything about philosophy, so talking about philosophy isn't going to be relevant. I, I want to begin by reading a, a quotation from Brian Gadawa. Um, you can look up who he is uh, if you want. He works in Hollywood, um, and he wrote a book called Hollywood Worldviews, Watching Films with Wisdom and Discernment. And I find it fascinating, but he has a quote in here that I'd like to read to you all. And he says, People may not call their philosophical beliefs by their academic names of metaphysics, which deals in reality, epistemology, which deals in knowledge, and ethics, which deals in morality, but they operate upon them nevertheless. When a person says that someone ought not to butt in line at a movie theater, which is ethics, because everyone knows, which is epistemology, that first come, first served is the way the world works, and that what goes around comes around, which is metaphysics, then knowingly or unknowingly she is expressing a philosophy. When a kid watches the animated movie Shrek, he probably doesn't know about Carl Jung's theories of psychological types and the collective unconscious, but he is ingesting them nonetheless through those characters and that story adapted after the Jungian model. And then he has a uh, footnote there where he has a specific quote from the screenwriters of Shrek admitting and saying that they very much emphasize the Jungian ideas from the book in the play, in the, the movie that they wrote. I, I think his, I, his point here is something that we need to understand, that everything has a worldview. And whether or not we recognize or can explain it through its academic name or not doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And I think that's particularly relevant when it comes to this issue of Gnosticism uh, to our teenagers and the things that they are dealing with um, in terms of this idea of Gnosticism. And so to explain that a little bit, and this is a very um, 
simplistic view of what Gnosticism is, and maybe I'm boiling this down too much, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting the idea of Gnosticism too much, but ultimately what Gnosticism does is it separates out um, some sort of spirit from the body, that there's these two separate things, um, that there is this greater, mightier force that is some sort of ethereal spirit, something like that, um, some part of us, our soul, that is separate from our physical reality, from our body, and that these are two separate things. And so in this idea of the separation between you know, body and spirit, um, we find some sort of um, understanding of trying to achieve to the spiritual level, trying to get to this different thing. And ultimately what we say is, well, because I'm a spirit and my I am not who I may seem to be, that I am different from what I do. What I am is not defined by the things that I've done. I am not defined by my physical appearance. I am not what my body says that I am. I'm separate from that. Who I am is separate from what you may see or from what my body may be. And this idea is so relevant in so many ways and so many different issues as it applied to our world today. Specifically, if you think about people struggling with, you know, some sort of transgender identity, someone who is a woman who thinks that they are a man or a man who thinks that they are a woman, you know, people that are struggling with this identity crisis will use this language. They will say, look, my body may be that of a man, but that is not who I am. I am a woman and my body is misrepresenting who I am. And that's kind of what they say. Um, that, that's kind of one of those arguments or um, justifications for the struggle that they have. And I, and I don't say this to demean the struggle of any individual. Everybody has their own difficulties in life that they are dealing with. But I also don't think it is fair to just dismiss your anatomy and say that you are separate from what you are. I don't think that that's biblical. And I think that that's a particularly relevant issue in our society, with our children, with young people of the world today. And not because of just transgender issues, homosexual issues, those sorts of things, but specifically in terms of how we deal with Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever sort of device or way that we connect with other people, somehow we think that that is separate from who we are. Now, we still get the gratification of it, do we not? We still chase the like, uh, the retweet, uh, the share. Um, We still chase those things, but ultimately... Somehow we think that what we do in this separate electronic world does not define who we are. That we can be mean or insulting or bully or do grotesque things in this other virtual world and somehow that is separate from who we are. And that's the way that we think and that's the way that we act until somebody does something to us that hurts us in this space. Someone bullies us. Someone mistreats us. Someone insults us in this other universe And then when that happens, now we think that it's all too real. But because we are so divorced from this electronic world that exists, because it is something that is not as tangible as face-to-face contact with somebody else, I think that it pushes us in this direction of struggling with the idea of Gnosticism, of struggling with the idea of separation from what we do and who we are, that I can be a certain way on Twitter or YouTube or however I'm representing myself electronically and that that is not actually what I am and that does not define me. 
Um, we can have a separate personality. And we go even so far as to having uh, multiple accounts. You know, the account that our parents see and that people at church see and the account that nobody else knows about. Or the account that has our name and then the account that has a fake name. The email address that has our name or the email address that has a fake name so that we can send nasty emails to people. I mean, we have the ability now to represent ourselves as some completely different person. We can create and craft a completely different online persona, different than who we are. And it's easier than ever. And I think we see our children struggling with this and the way that they deal with one another and the way that they socially interact with one another. And they do things, and we find our children who we think are a certain type of person doing things in this electronic world that is completely uncharacteristic of who they are. I think this is a real problem, and I think this is something that we are combating, that we have to face as parents, that we have to face as people. Because ultimately, this isn't just a a young person problem. You see adults every day sending out the nastiest, meanest tweets to people, and then their profile picture is them and their child. And you think there's no way that this person is like this in front of their children. And maybe they are, but most likely they aren't. Because even adults fall into this trap of thinking that this electronic world is separate from who they are. And so I want to read a few passages with you all. And I want us to consider this idea a little more. And again, you know, feel free to to let me know what you think about this. Maybe I'm way off. Maybe you don't um, think that this is right. um, That this is not a a struggle that people are really facing. Um, Or maybe this is... This is pinpointing the wrong issue. Maybe this isn't the the fundamental flaw. Maybe there's something else going on here. Um, either way, you know, let me know. Um, I I want to hear from you. Um, but either way, I, I I think it'll definitely be worth our time to read some Bible verses together, um, at least talking about this very idea. And so first, I want to go to Matthew chapter seven. Um, in Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse fifteen, it says, "Beware of the false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing." but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. This is... I love this. I... As I got a little bit older, I started to appreciate this language a little bit more. Um, And as silly as it sounds, uh, it was when I had a garden. Um, It was trying to grow vegetables that I that I really started to understand a little bit better about uh, about this analogy. I don't know that I understood it better, but I understood it differently. Let's say that. Um, So I was living in Kentucky, and I decided I was going to grow a vegetable garden. Everybody grows vegetable gardens up there. You got good soil, easy to grow. So I was going to grow a vegetable garden. So I. Uh, plowed out some nice little rows, got a bunch of seeds, you know, squash, pumpkins, watermelon, uh, zucchini, cucumbers, radishes, corn, green beans, tomatoes, all sorts of stuff, right? Vegetables, fruits, different things. And I planted them all in the rows and I was so excited. But I didn't label what I had planted where. And, uh, you know, things started sprouting out. And I was so excited. I started to see these things growing. Um, being from Florida where we don't have as good a soil and a vegetable garden is not quite as common of a thing um, in the sand. Um, I was super excited to see this stuff growing. So every day I'd go out there, I'd check it, I'd look at it. 
Um, my parents came to visit when everything was still growing, and I was like, look, you know, here are my watermelon. This is where my zucchini are. This is going to be some squash. Look at my corn. I was so excited pointing out where everything was. And then they started to bear fruit. And I realized that what I thought was a green bean plant was corn. Uh, what I thought was squash was zucchini. The watermelons were actually pumpkins. I was completely mixed up as to what plant was where. Well, the pumpkin plant had the pumpkin on it, right? The cucumbers were growing on the cucumber plant. The green bean plant can't grow tomatoes. It grows green beans. And you know that because there's green beans on it. I mean, it's the simplest thing. Like, the analogy is the simplest of all analogies, right? It's called an apple tree because it's got apples. You don't call an orange tree a plum tree because an orange tree is oranges. And we understand that. It's the most simple sorts of thing. And that's the analogy that Jesus is using here in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about false prophets. He says, look, you're going to know the false prophets when they come among you. They're going to pretend to be one way. They're going to pretend to be sheep. But they're actually going to be ravenous wolves. And here's the test. You'll know them by what they do. They can say whatever they want. But at the end of the day, if they're bearing bad fruit, they're not what they say that they are. What you do defines who you are. That's what he's saying. And as horrifying as a thought as that is for us as people who make mistakes, the fact is we are what we do. You may say, yeah, I told a lie, but I'm not a liar. Well, yeah, you are. You told a lie. That's what a liar is. Or you may say, I stole something, but that doesn't make me a thief. Yes, it does. That is the definition of a thief. And yet somehow because that language is so dark, because we don't admit that our mistakes are who we are, that we are people who make mistakes, we want to separate ourselves from those mistakes. We want to say, oh, that was, that was a one-time thing. That's not who I am. But the fact is, if you stole something, you're a thief. Now you can change from being a thief. You can redefine who you are by the things that you do after that. You can overcome those sorts of um, definitions. You can overcome the fruit that you have once born and bear different fruit now. But the fact of the matter is, you are what you do. And no matter what you think, no matter what you say, no matter how much you don't like it, what you do defines you. It's that simple. It's that dark, but it's that simple. And so we look at this issue of this electronic world that we're dealing in. We look at this issue that specifically our young people deal with, but really all of us, as we interact in this electronic universe, what we do in these places is still who we are. If you're bullying somebody on Twitter, you're still a bully, whether you think that you're a nice person in, quote-unquote, RL or not. Look, what you do is who you are. And we need to make sure that our children understand that. When we teach them diligently... To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That doesn't end once you pick up your phone and enter the Twitter sphere. Right? If you love God, you love God. If you don't love God, you don't love God. You don't turn it on and off. You can't flip the switch on and off on who you are. You are what you do. And just because you think you can hide about hide it, you know, in some sort of fake account doesn't mean that you're actually hiding anything because what you do defines you 
Let's look at another passage. Let's look at another situation in which this sort of language comes up. And again, this is a different context. So Matthew, in Matthew 7, he's talking about false prophets, but I think we understand that the principle of false prophets still applies to other people about bearing fruit and you're defined by, you know, what you do. But I want us to go to another context. And again, this is not the way we typically look at James chapter 2, but I still think that James chapter 2 is very much teaching this principle. And so in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, it says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not only by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So again, what we see here, most obviously, is a discussion of faith and works. But I think we also see within this passage this very idea that we're talking about, right? You can say you have all the faith in the world. You can say whatever you want. But if you're not demonstrating that faith, that faith doesn't mean anything. I don't know exactly what James is trying to fight with um, when he writes this. I don't know exactly what the specific ideology was that was being a spouse that he is trying to correct. I, I don't claim to be that prescient to understand those things, but I do understand that what he is saying principally is that you have to be consistent with what you do and what you say. And if you're not, what you say is worthless. You can think you have all the faith in the world, but if you're not acting upon it, if you're not demonstrating it by what you do, then that faith really doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, that is the idea. Whether you're talking about faith, whether you're talking about the fruit that you bear, we need to make sure that we are people who are consistent with what we say and with what we do. I saw an argument um, taking place on Twitter, of all places, right, um, about the issue of abortion. Um, and apparently in uh, Ireland, they had some vote on uh, some abortion law, and I don't know the details. But this conversation had broken out, this argument had broken out on Twitter um, uh, about this this bill being passed. And of course, there were a lot of people uh, for the passing of this bill, which I understand if they passed it, it was going to relax the abortion laws versus if it didn't pass, then they were going to remain more strict. I could be wrong about that, but it's essentially something like that. But the people who were for abortion, for pro-choice, the ability for a woman to choose— um, we're attacking uh, 
the people who were saying that abortion was wrong and that it shouldn't be passed, that it was murder and, and those sorts of things. We've all heard these discussions and arguments a million times. But one of the things that they were saying was, where are all these Christians who are saying that a life is a life and it needs to be preserved? What are they doing for the kids in um, foster care, for all these kids that need adopting? Where are all these Christians, if they think that a life is so important, what are they doing to help? Which I thought that was a really funny argument. Um, Because in their worldview, they don't see Christians doing that. I I could list a dozen people by name. Uh, that I know who have taken specific action to help uh, foster kids, to help adopt kids, to help take kids from these difficult situations. I mean, literally a dozen, if not more, um, with a little bit of thinking. And I don't know a whole lot of people. I mean, the fact of the matter is, from this person's perspective, they didn't see Christians doing anything. And I, I bring all this up to say that ultimately, we need to make sure that we are people who are consistent with what we say. Because, yeah, that's true. If we say that a life is a life and things need to be done, then what are we doing to help with that? Now, look, not everybody can adopt a child. Not everybody has the ability, the means, the time uh, to to adopt children or to take kids out of foster care to be a foster parent. Um, There are a lot of terrible situations that need a lot of help, and we find our place to do the best we can in the circumstances that we are in. Um, So the point is not that we all need to start going and adopting kids. But, you know, a lot of families give money to adoption. Um, a lot of families do adopt. A lot of families go to the foster care system. A lot of families and a lot of people have done a lot of things to help people in those very situations because they recognize the, con- the need for being consistent in their life. That if you're going to say abortion is wrong and a life is a life and these children matter, that sometimes you got to put your money where your mouth is. Sometimes you got to put your actions up against what you've said. And I know a lot of people who have. But the question is whether or not it's, it's abortion and, and children that are in, in, in uh, difficult states, whether it's that or something else. The question is, are we consistent with what we say and with what we do? And again, I mean, it, it comes back to how we represent ourselves. Do we say certain things and do something else? Or do we do what we say we're going to do? Are we truthful about who we are, about what we believe, about what we are all about or do we hide behind a fake account so that we can get away with doing terrible things do we create profiles in these different apps to pretend like we're somebody else to get away with doing the things that we want to do do we try and have a secret life because somehow if it's secret it's separate from who we are I mean I I don't know but that is the question right at the end of the day are we diligently teaching our children the need for being consistent in every aspect of their life. Because I think it can be easy to try and teach these sorts of things and then in the world that we have today for a young person, for an adult, for anybody with access to this electronic world to try and separate out a separate identity from who they are. And that's something we need to be aware of. Something we need to teach against. Something we need to be diligent about. To make sure that we show ourselves to be consistent in who we are. One last thing I want to read. You know, we talked about fruit in Galatians or Matthew chapter 7. And so now we're going to go to Galatians chapter 5 and read the fruits of the Spirit. Um, something that most all of us are probably familiar with um, if you are a Christian. But here in Galatians chapter 5, 
we'll start. We're, we're going to do a little bit longer reading because I think that this whole section is, is worth our consideration. So listen with me as I read in Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another and envying one another. So, uh, there's a couple things I want to say before we look at some of the specific things said about the fruits of the Spirit. This section sometimes, I think that we tend to read flesh and spirit as some sort of physical versus ethereal um, juxtaposition. That we have the flesh, which is our body and physical things, versus the spirit, which is ethereal, um, some sort of floaty spirit type of thing that is separate from that. I don't think that that's what's being said here in Galatians 5. I don't think that's the language of the New Testament. Um, I think we fall into that trap um, for a number of reasons that we're not going to get into now, but I don't think that that's the case here. And again, this is one of those opportunities. If you disagree with me, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to email in followingthewaypodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at followingway. And, uh, and I'd love to have a conversation with you about this if you disagree. But I don't see this as a physical versus ethereal argument. I think that that plays into the idea of Gnosticism. That what we are and what we do are two separate things. I think what Paul is actually saying here in Galatians chapter 5 is that the flesh... He's defining as these lustful um, sorts of fleshly passions and desires that we need to put to death. And those are bad things. Those are things that we are drawn to that are inappropriate. The drunkenness, the carousing, the envying, the dissensions, the jealousy, the outburst of anger, all that kind of stuff. And he juxtaposes that with other things that we can do. Notice that the fruits of the Spirit are not things that are ethereal by nature. They're still things that we demonstrate here and now in our bodies with what we do, which is part of the reason why I don't think this is a physical versus ethereal juxtaposition. But look at what he says we need to be. We need to be full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that should characterize us. And again, we're talking about the fruit that we bear. If we have the Spirit of God in us, if we have Christ dwelling in us, God dwelling in us, if we are allowing those things to transform us, then we should be characterized by these positive things. That should define who we are. And that's in all the fruit that we bear, not just some of it. 
we are what we do. And so at the end of the day, do we carouse? Are we jealous? Do we cause strife and enmity? Or are we people who are kind and loving and joyful? Which is it? I mean, what we do defines who we are. We can't separate those two things out. And again, I think this is something that's particularly relevant to our young people, but I don't think it just stops with them. I think this is something for all of us to consider. And so, this week, um, as you think about these things, maybe, hopefully, um, let me know what conclusions you come to. Let me know uh, how this strikes you. Um, Whether you think that this is a real problem for young people, whether you think this is a problem for older people, um, let, let me know your thoughts about this. And let me know specifically... Um, any suggestions you have for how we might um, help our children, help our young people overcome this difficulty, this separation of what they do from who they are? You know, let me know. I, I, I'd be anxious to hear from you. Um, and, and again, I always really appreciate your listening. Um, however you're listening, um, you know, share the podcast with, with others that you think might find it helpful. Um, you know, rate it, you know, give me, give me whatever ratings you think I deserve. Um, give me whatever feedback you think. And, uh, and I'll try and amend, uh, amend these episodes accordingly, but I, I really appreciate your time and consideration. And, uh, I look forward to catching you next time on following the way. Thank you for listening to another episode of following the way. Hopefully you found this episode encouraging and interesting, and I look forward to hearing any feedback you may have at followingthewaypodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at followingway. Please feel free to get in contact with the show with any questions or comments that you have. And once again, and as always, thank you so much for your time and for listening.